HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. Oh yeah, that's right. It's Monday. It's What Doesn't Kill Ya, Food Industry Insights. I... I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and it is my great pleasure to be here. Uh, I hope everybody's well and had a fantastic weekend. I don't think I've ever mentioned that before, but yeah, this is a Monday, normally a Monday day uh, noontime podcast, even though most people listen to it at their leisure, but just saying. Anyway, today, uh, as I was driving back from Rhode Island, I learned this morning that 65 million people, this is a recently reported factoid from the UN, 65 million people are either displaced internally or are actual refugees, including 12 million Syrians. Um, And I think they said something like that was about at least half of their population. Probably a good portion of the remaining half is either dead or um, maimed in some way. But anyway, that's another story. Um, Most of these people are winding up in countries that are the least able to afford taking care of them or assimilating them. And yet the U.S. takes in a tiny, tiny fraction of that massive stream of 65 million people. Um, And much of this crisis uh, is directly attributable to the American meddling in the Middle East. I'm just saying, people. I'm just saying. I think we need to step up. 
in spite of our revolting uh, administration. Okay, now if you did not hear the terrific tribute to Philando Castile, which was assembled last year, um, right after his death, uh, by the wonderful Laura Stanley, uh, who was the inside school food um, host, and as well as other people helping her, including I think our own very own Dave in the engineering booth. Um, another uh, deeply, you should listen to it. You should listen for, look for it now. Dial it in. It's um, it's posted on our website, and it was really terrific. Um, I thought it was great when it broadcast. I thought it was great when I heard it again um, just the other day, and I'm urging you to listen to it as well. Uh, in the wake of another deeply shameful episode in the war on African Americans in this country. Um, when the uh, officer who murdered Mr. Castile was acquitted. Uh, Mr. Castile was uh, just fumbling in his, um, in case you didn't follow this story, because there were so many just like it, um, he was just fumbling in his um, glove compartment looking for his registration when the officer opened fire in front of a witness who videotaped it. Anyway, listen to the Philando Castile um, tribute because uh, it really is terrific. Um, and so that leads me to a place um, where I want to uh, take a moment to plead for money. We are in the midst of our summer fundraising drive. And if you listen to my show or any of the other 35 unique shows on this network, I implore you to pony up whatever you can to help us stay afloat. Aside from our full-time staff, uh, we all work for free. Yes, that's right. We spend hours every week preparing these shows, uh, corralling our guests, developing questions, reading books, uh, reading background information so that we can bring a really informed viewpoint to our interviews. Um, so, uh, And we do this out of a sense of fun because it's really fun, um, but also a sense of commitment um, because I think all of us believe that telling you sort of the what, the where, the how, and the why of American food is an important service uh, to render because food and food industry uh, is really very opaque to many, many people. Um, we are, as a station and as a nation, we are made up of so many glimmering strands of culture and population. And every week, we, your hosts, try to bring you, the listeners, the big picture about the all important topic of food and how it affects our daily lives. So whether it's pure pleasure or whether it's the nuts and bolts of the industry or the politics behind it or how to, you know, ferment your own vegetables, whatever it is, uh, there is something literally for everyone and everyone's interests here. So I, I really, I urge you to listen to all of the shows on the network. Um, you will not hear the range or depth of programming anywhere else. I guarantee that. So please go to our website, Press the beating heart and show us some love, please. And personally speaking, I just want you to know that I would literally shrivel up into a raisin or a fig if I didn't have this glorious opportunity to hear myself talk every single week. So please keep me hydrated with your dollars. And, uh, and now we are... <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Uh, yeah, I want to see that. Uh, you know, when, back in my BAI days, because yes, I did broadcast for WBAI for many, many years when I was but a ute. Um, and we had to do fundraising drives all the time. I'm sure anybody who's old enough to remember BAI as something besides what it is now um, will remember that those fundraising drives came along with um, grisly regularity. And But what was gratifying about them was that you'd actually see the phones light up when you like struck a nerve with the listener. You could see like all the buttons on the phones going bing, 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 bing. That was kind of cool. But, you know, we don't have that anymore in the digital age. That's one of the 
losses. Anyway, stay tuned because we are going to be uh, talking to Tom Driscoll today. Um, He is a new acquaintance of mine. He um, is with the National Farmers Union. And we're going to be talking about the real deal, the the nuts and bolts of farming, uh, what policies farmers would like to see uh, included in the Farm Bill, and much, much more. So stay tuned. We'll be right back after this sponsor drop. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs, including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters who acknowledge the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. Hi, I'm Kate Black, host of Magnifico Radio and Heritage Radio Network, the weekly podcast featuring conversations in ethical fashion, clean beauty, and sustainable living. Tune in on Mondays at 1 o'clock when I sit down with designers, makers, and leaders at the forefront of sustainability. Support my show and all of the Heritage Radio Network's programming. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to become a member today. Do it, people. Press that beating heart. Do it and do it now. Whilst I'm warming up our next victim here. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's not really true. I don't mean it. He's not a victim. He's not a victim. Um, no, he's a, a proud guest of What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. Um, and his name is Tom Driscoll. He is the director of the National Farmers Union Foundation and Conservation Policy. Um, Tom started with the NFU as a government relations representative in August 2014. And as the director of the NFU Foundation and of the organization's conservation policy, Tom works to ensure family farmers, beginning farmers, and youth involved in the organization uh, that that you, those people involved in the organization have the educational resources they need to succeed through market and environmental changes. And he also represents their interests on energy, climate, and environmental issues. Welcome to the program, Tom. I'm hoping this will be one of many visits. Excellent. Thank you. I am uh, very appreciative of the good work of Heritage Radio and am glad to be on. That's great. Thank you very much. Um, so, Tom, why don't you tell people, why don't we start by having you tell people a little bit about the National Farmers Union and who the farmers are that you represent or feel that you represent? You bet. Farmers Union is the second largest, second oldest general farm organization working in the U.S. Uh, we were founded in 1902 wow. um, around principles of cooperative development. Uh, resisting market market consolidation, unfair price controls and practices by folks like input providers, uh, food processors, mm-hmm. and railroads. Um, so we've got this cooperative bent that really informs our policy throughout our entire history and into today. Uh, we're very concerned with 
rural communities and making sure that the quality of life in the countryside, the quality of life for the people who produce our food is uh, vibrant and enticing. We want to see more farmers working the land um, and having, you know, more vibrant communities. And uh, that's kind of where we're at. So um, what's the average size farm that you work with in general? Are they like the small, smaller niche farmers or medium to large? Or you're not, you're not really representing the big agribusinesses, I'm guessing, right? So we represent family farmers, mm-hmm. and we define that in the negative. So we do not represent heavily vertically integrated multinational conglomerates. Um, what a, <laughs> what a like family Cargill. farmer looks like is very different from place to place. We, we don't want to uh, get hung up on size because acreage looks very different on the East Coast than it does in the middle of the country. Sure. Um, but we insist that our members are actively engaged in managing and provide labor on their farms. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and we do... Uh, it, our our bread and butter representation is kind of that agriculture of the middle that you can read so much about the disappearance of. Mm-hmm. You know, someone with a couple hundred acres in the middle of the country. We have increasing and quickly growing membership among uh, direct to consumer marketers and people who are entering agriculture from other career paths. Mm. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about uh, market consolidation because, um, well, I mean, first of all, the blockbuster news about Whole Foods being acquired by Amazon uh, can only lead to more consolidation in the food industry. Um, But, um, you know, talk a little bit about how consolidation in livestock, ag, and in agrochemical and seed companies has affected, um, you know, your basic farmer cohort. The very first impact that our farmers face when a seed company or an input company or a processor consolidates is that they have fewer options to purchase the essential components of farming and are therefore more vulnerable to price gouging, price shocks, however you want to label that, or whatever different behavior may actually be at play. Mm-hmm. You know, just the stagnation of a, of a lack of competition leads input providers to, uh, you know, kind of not look for ways to offer substantial value for our farmers because no one is really questioning their market share by trying to get out in front of them with ways to offer product at value. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some of the, uh, there's a number of other scarier problems that take a little longer to manifest, like slowdown in research, um, excessive reliance on one particular product for input that, you know, as much as we may rely on certain crop protection products, uh, if a problem arose with that product, uh, essential ingredient we suddenly lose access to due to uh, transportation breakdown, political problems halfway across the world, mm-hmm. all of a sudden everything that's relying on that one single product uh, is called into question, and you could have a substantial and scary reduction in yield. 
um, you know, this so kind of talking, contributes. You're talking uh, about go like, ahead, I'm sorry. You're talking about like if a disease, for example, in other words, you're talking about monocropping using one genetic or two genetic varieties of, say, a seed. Um, and uh, if that crop fails, then that's what you're talking about? Or are you talking about just the fact that farmers... Um, you know, are, are like, say, if the ethanol mandate goes away and everybody who's growing corn suddenly has this huge glut of corn um, and then the price drops through the toilet. So let's differentiate a little bit about that sort of what you're saying, because it's, it's, it's kind of, a, you know, not specific enough for my feeble mind, fr- frankly. <laughs> okay, so if you get started down a path where, let's say, glyphosate is a very popular product for yeah. farmers in the United States, uh, Something happens to the glyphosate supply. Mm-hmm. You know that they have a lot of outlets, and it's it's resilient. Um, it, it, that might not get to the point where you're really affecting food security, but certainly if there's a problem getting glyphosate out to a certain area or a locality, that's a big problem for those producers. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that product wouldn't be available to them. They uh, want for alternatives, want for viable alternatives, because the R&D hasn't been as robust as we might like. And all of a sudden, everyone who is growing Roundup Ready Corner Beans has a real problem on their hands. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. They sure will. Well, I mean, this is a, a little aside, but uh, there's a lot of, of um, you know, a lot of rumors and speculation swirling around those um, uncovered studies about glyphosate uh, causing tumors in mice, and those were ignored or basically buried by the EPA. In fact, my next guest next week is going to be talking about that. She's a reporter who's been following this for quite a while. Um, but yeah, that, I mean, <laughs> you know, that's that's a whole different story. Anyway, but let's let's talk a little bit about um, what. So, in the case of what you're describing here, where say there is no because there's a slowdown in research and development, then farmers don't have access to a variety of products that will perform uh, the same way as, say, glyphosate does. What what means do farmers have to kind of fight back against this kind of market consolidation uh, and monopolies? Like, you know, like, say, in that instance, or say in the case of livestock farmers who were who are contracted to uh, Tyson or, or um, you know, Pilgrim's Pride or something like that, and and that's another another area where I see consolidation has had a really negative impact on farmers. What 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 can they do to sort of fight back against this? What do you guys do to help them? I guess is my question. So, one of the the proactive things we do is that we try to share resources and encourage people to develop or patronize and participate in cooperatives. Right. Cooperative organizing is uh, an important tool that farmers have that is always available to them that is not dependent on further agency, uh, further yeah, further action from the government. That is there, and you can get together with people in your community and you know organize a buying club, get more sophisticated, and you've got a cooperative, mm-hmm. or look for the cooperatives in your area so that that's that's your first line of defense to resist some of that banding together with farmers in your community participating in your cooperatives to ensure you know you get that dividend the products you need are available in your community and you're keeping more money locally rather than shipping it out of town uh-huh. um you know farmers banding together that way is a very important key 
rural development at USDA does a, a fine job of encouraging that. There's uh, grants and, and other resources available, as well as just the technical assistance documents. Uh, I think that cooperative education um, among our university system and outlets like that has been slowing down, so it's a little more incumbent on people to educate themselves about those opportunities or work with groups like Farmers Union uh -huh. to make sure that you are well-versed in that, know how that can operate for you, know how that can benefit you. But uh, there, there are a lot of resources out there through R&D, and that's an important aspect. Um, you know, the other thing is working with DOJ or SEC to ask for more effective enforcement of antitrust legislation and regulations. I'm so glad you said that. Because <laughs> that's, I, as you know, I mean, that's definitely on my mind. Um, so, so part of the, these cooperatives would, I, I imagine, include uh, organizing politically in the sense of being able to send perhaps a coalition of farmers to talk to people at DOJ or talk to people at SEC about the impact of consolidation on their way of life? I mean, is that is that part of what you guys help them do, or is that something that they um, are sort of left to manage on their own? Well, it, you know, if, if these decisions wind up being very politically, um, you know, we, we always weigh in publicly with, the agencies that are in charge that are in charge of reviewing these plans and let them know uh, producers' interests through letters, through press releases, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. um, it is as as merger mania kind of continues and even ramps up. Um, there's a, a need that we're exploring to look into uh, the regulations that implement the legislation like the Sherman Act or other anti-monopoly mm -hmm. legislation, um, you know, examining the, the internal guidance that the, the agencies for, uh, tasked with reviewing these deals use to navigate uh, whether or not to approve, approve a decision. You know, we, we're, we're working toward getting ourselves very educated in uh, how those work so that we can provide better advice for the agencies on, you know, precisely why these are harmful for producers and the economy at large mm -hmm. and uh, working with them to find, uh, you know, a constructive path forward on uh, protecting producers and consumers in these instances. Well, you know, Tom, one of the things that strikes me is that um, <clears throat> there is quite a divide. So, for example, when we're talking about, you know, groups that have fought against market consolidation, of course, I'm, my particular interest in agriculture is livestock. So, for instance, I'm thinking of the RCAF guys, Bill Bullard and Mike Calicrate and those, you know, that cohort who have been lobbying, um, you know, doing their best to bring attention uh, to the consolidation in the livestock market. Um, but then there's, on the other flip side of that, there's the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, the American Meat Institute, um, and all of the people who subscribe to that particular um you know, way of doing business, for lack of a better term. So how, how, how do you, where, where do you find the, the sort of common ground between those two groups, or do you? Um, and in that case, how do you help support the, the naysayers like the RCAF guys 
um, as opposed to you know the the lobbying interests of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, which is very powerful. Yeah, so we we see eye to eye with NCBA on on very little. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> but depending on issues, you know, we we uh, we participate in broad and diverse coalitions where our policy overlaps. Uh, we do a lot of work on these issues with uh, Food and Water Watch and oh, yeah. U.S. Cattlemen's Association, which is uh, another uh, beef group here in town that has a, a pragmatic approach similar to ours, mm-hmm. uh, very different than NCBA or AMI. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's the space we try to navigate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Work with consumer groups and folks like that. Right. Um, talk a little bit about the farmer fair practices rules that you guys published in 2016, because that's definitely part of this discussion, isn't it? Yes, yes. We are definitely in favor of things like, you know, keeping grain inspection public and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, protections at the stockyard, grain inspection and uh, stockyard act, stuff like that. Right, the gypsum so, rules, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, GYPSA. So the Farmer Fair Practice Rules are a recent development that have some really good points there. Uh, The interim final rule that um, uses a plain language administrative interpretation of the statute that does not require a demonstration of harm to the entire industry um, is is real Uh. progress, and that will... Uh, barring adverse action from this from this administration, that will go into effect in October. Mm-hmm. So, what how things stand uh, before this rule takes effect? The the regime we're operating in now, um, you cannot ask for relief under uh, you know under the rules as they stand unless the producer can demonstrate that they were. Uh, the the object of action that harmed competition, harmed the entire industry. Right. Um, so now we're narrowing that, and it will be much easier for a producer to prove harm uh, if they don't have to prove harm to the entire industry. Yeah, of course. Uh, That's huge, actually. I didn't know that that had um, been written as an interim final rule. Um, So um, one of the other things that uh, is included in that Farmer Fair Practices rule has to do with trade agreements. Talk a little bit about... Because there was a lot of sort of back and forth about NAFTA um, and then, you know, TPP, which got squashed immediately by this administration, although I know many people decided that it was not a great, a great trade deal. Um, and then there's the deal, which I guess I'm not sure where it stands now, TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade and something partnership, whatever it is called, trade international. Blah. Anyway, but you know what I'm talking about. So what, trade agreements can have both uh, positive and negative impacts on farmers. So can we talk a little bit about what's what would be best for you guys? And then I want to go back and talk a little bit about Sunny Purdue because you mentioned the current regime. So, but right now let's 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 zero in on trade practices for a second. Okay, uh, that is a, always a fun thing for us to talk about. We are pretty <laughs> distinct among major ag organizations in really? D.C. on that. Um, we are a fair trade rather than a free trade organization here at NFU. Uh-huh. Uh, we believe that most of the trade agreements, if not all the trade agreements, uh, currently 
work for the commodity, not for the farmer growing the commodity. And that's an important distinction that might not be clear to people who aren't pretty well versed in how the business of farming goes. Yeah, that would be um, me. Mm-hmm. Explain me. Explain that to me. So farmers tend to not grow uh, one commodity. So something that really benefits, uh, you know, one particular uh, species of livestock or, or corn over other, you know, corn over wheat or something like that. You know, most people are looking at rotations mm-hmm. and. Um, when you really zero in uh, your support to be targeted at a particular commodity, that winds up benefiting uh, packers and multinational uh, groups much more than the farmer growing it. Um, Mm -hmm. What we think would be beneficial in trade agreements other than just, you know, food sovereignty and respecting the agricultural economy of foreign countries um, would be getting rid of in investor state dispute um, preferences where companies can find uh, various rules in a country harmful and sue the government of the country over mm-hmm. those rules um, when most of them are just you know trying to offer some some protection for the producers uh, so that you know folks can have a a viable ag commodity in their own country. Um, so, so would cool, yeah, would cool food have been that? And, uh, sorry. being respectful of others' farm economies. I'm sorry, you broke up a little bit. Um, there. I was good. I was. I interrupted you, which is always my my downfall, and I apologize for it. But um, but as an example of that, I think the country of origin labeling wasn't that an example of a rule that would have been beneficial to American producers, but then was taken to the World Trade Organization, uh, and we were sued by Canada and Mexico because it would have had a negative impact on their cattle, for example? Yes. So th- that would yeah. be an example that we could use of that investor, um, suing investor state, what did you call it? Uh, investor, investor state dispute. Investor state dispute, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, in, in that case, um, we actually, they had to go through one step. Um, you know, the, the producer, the... Uh, Packers, the processors, who were not keen on having to offer this labeling to the American public, Mm -hmm. in that case, they had to get the government of Canada and the government of Mexico Mm -hmm. to bring this dispute forward. Really? Um, Investor, uh, there are a number of rules that would allow countries, uh, companies, to sue countries directly without going through that step, and that's kind of a you know, a, a gatekeeper that that when the country has to bring the suit, you're going to have to prove one more level of it's got to pass an additional laugh test. If a company can just bring it, that's more problematic. Uh huh. Okay. All right. So I'm um, moving right along um, because we are, uh, believe it or not, we only have about 15 more minutes, and I have a lot more questions for you, Tom. Um, one of the things that um, I've been I, I've been doing, I wrote an article recently, which um, has yet to be published. I'm not sure if they've accepted it even, but it was about foreign and institutional investment. And one of the things in farmland, and one of the things that I learned as I was doing the research for this, is that farming income, because of the low commodity prices in the last couple of years for corn and soy, et cetera, um, farming income is projected to be about 50% of what it was, say, five years ago. Um, so... 
first of all, why is that happening? Is that just a function of price? And that's what I thought crop insurance and price stability and commodities was all about. And also talk a little bit about the um, knock-on impacts to on ancillary businesses when that kind of drop in farming income uh, takes place. Sure. So a lot of the programs, you know, especially in the in the current fiscal climate, um, you know, there, there's there's an acknowledgement that the the uh, best good prices and being able to sell your product is really what producers need to succeed. Um, mm-hmm. The safety net, we appreciate it. Um, sometimes it works better than others. It's highly imperfect. There's no. Uh, no set way to um, address that. You know, it, we can't account for every contingency, um, and that's that's where farm income can drop when just prices are, are so bad for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, eventually you you start to get to the point where that's going to impact farmland value and mm-hmm. producers' ability to borrow. Um, money that they need to conduct their business starts to get compromised. It can get really ugly really quickly with, Mm. um, you know, just the volatility of the markets that our producers have to uh, exist in, not to mention the, uh, it's kind of ripe for interference from processors, as we sort of discussed in the uh, Mm. consolidation aspect. And they have to deal with weather. You know, we're getting a lot of... um, a lot of reports out of Kansas and Oklahoma that weather is really going to impact a lot of producers this year. Um, oh yeah, spend a lot of money to to put the seed in and and you know lay down the initial product you need to. And it, it when you get bad weather, it really just kicks the crap out of you. Um, well, I think I read that the Kansas is it the wheat crop that's really uh, just absolutely failing this year for them. It was uh, there's one of the a lot big of commodity. concern about it. Yeah. We, we'll have to wait to see a little more about exactly how it goes out. But, yeah, there's a lot of scary conversations about that in Kansas. And then sure. also they had the wildfires. Mm-hmm. So that was yeah. also huge. And on top of that, they have that absolute moron, Sam Brownback, who has been playing, you know, uh, chicken with the state's economy by introducing, you know, supply side economics and cutting taxes on the wealthy. And, you know, and so like, there's really, there's no money in the Kansas coffers. I mean, they're failing as a state. Um, you read about that, right? That they, yeah, the, the state legislature just overrode Brownback's veto on raising taxes. Like, I mean, how, how bad does the situation have to get a state that not only is, you know, failing fiscally, but then has these tremendous, uh, you know, weather and fire events that they have no money to help their, uh, you know, their citizens with? Anyway, but that's, that's another story. Uh, where are you, And by then the we've way? got problems with, you know, this, this White House is really calling mm-hmm. into question our access to international markets, which, you yes. know, for better or for worse or for complicated, both good and bad reasons, you know, that, that uh, you know, we rely on, on access to those markets, and that's highly jeopardized at the moment, um, as well as support for biofuels, which, again, no matter how you feel about biofuels, mm-hmm. um, that's a factor in the market that producers have been told to rely on, and it, it's now, you know, on much shakier ground than it used to mm-hmm. be. And all of that affects price and is, is uh, you know, rough for our folks. While well, input prices go up but never come down. Yeah, um, <laughs> because of market consolidation. To, to get back, 
I'm sorry? <laughs> because of market consolidation, right? <laughs> right. Well, and that's just it. To get back to your point on what this does to ancillary businesses, your tractor uh, repair, your just your gas station, your, your schools and your churches, mm. um, what, this, what happens here is that, you know, eventually someone's not making their payments and their ability to hand hang on to their land is called into question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the biggest person in the county, if they hear you're vulnerable, comes in and tries to, you know, take that land from you. And uh, the biggest farm in the county just gets bigger and bigger, fewer, uh, you know, less, less need for tractor repair to exist in that community, which causes the tax base to fall down further, which causes further erosion in uh, community institutions for want of people to participate. Mm-hmm. Uh, slowly, the town becomes unlivable, and people move out um, for lifestyle reasons of mm-hmm. their own volition. People are scratching at the door to get out. Yeah. And all that, you know, causes further, further land value uh, erosion, which makes it more and more available to uh larger consolidated producers and makes it harder for folks like beginning farmers to get out into the country to farm. Mm -hmm. So um, just to talk about those land values for a second, um, I know that in 2007, 2008, when the crash happened, uh, a lot of um, institutional investors got interested in buying farmland. And there was a a big spate of you know, these uh, hedge funds and investment banks and pension funds snapping up um, farmland, and to some extent, I think that drove prices up quite a bit. And I gather that they've flattened out a little bit since then. But how much do you see um, that uh, that trend continuing? I mean, are you worried that that will, or do you think about whether uh, you know, as as the scenario that you just described takes place across the Corn Belt, for instance, if biofuels goes away, um, do you see that happening in a big way? And what kind of impact on food security do you feel like that might have if if it's all sort of foreign acquisitions or uh, or institutional acquisitions of land, and the only thing they're growing are things that make a profit for them. I won't speculate as to how likely I think it is. I will tell you that that is a major concern for our, our organization and something we're mm-hmm. remaining vigilant and watchful over. North Dakota Farmers Union uh, just wrapped up a, a very lengthy battle to protect protections against corporate farming in North mm-hmm. Dakota for that reason. That was a, a major victory for our folks back in North Dakota. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's just a lot of problems there when you have foreign interests or institutional investors, like you said. Um, they have no roots in the community. Um, so they are not concerned with doing things like fouling a neighbor's water supply, fouling a community's water supply. Right. They are not concerned with uh, local jobs, local infrastructure in the community. And something that uh, I run into with my conservation work a lot, too, mm-hmm. is that when you have um, folks who are not well-versed in agriculture owning a lot of farmland, that makes it very hard to do things like um, explain conservation practices or explain uh, different types of farming that might have conservation and community benefits to people. Their institutional investors not grounded in ag are going to need to stick to, to very 
textbook, uh, you know, patterns for land use. Mm-hmm. When, uh, if your landlord is a farmer or if you're able to own the land yourself uh, as a producer, you're going to have a, a much more intuitive understanding of uh, how best to manage that land. Right, right. And so to continue to talk for a minute about conservation, um, one of the things that I think about a lot is water and the fact that the water regulations or water usage in this country, uh, particularly in drought-challenged areas, which include, um, newly include uh, Montana, for example, I think the Dakotas are suffering, um, in addition to obviously California or Texas or Colorado, um, Kansas, Oklahoma, these are all places where, uh, you know, the water supply uh, is um, so in some cases, uh, quite seriously fouled. Um, in other cases, it's just plain drying up, and there's a big bad drought. Um, and I, you know, like how how can uh, or how does what kind of solutions? I guess I'm asking for um, does the uh, does the National Farmers Union um, try to offer to farmers to help them conserve water um, and protect their water, uh, you know, their water sources. So in the immediate sense, you you have identified an immediate problem that we're working on, and we're going to be asking USDA to open up some CRP acres to hang and grazing. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very hard to work with USDA right now. They they just have yet to uh, populate all the offices and phones, so I'm (laughs) not sure how that will work out. I'm not Mm -hmm. sure that... um, you know, our attempt to communicate this issue to them is, is going to um, get the uh, get the attention that it, it may have, um, you know, had the administration been up and running a little more effectively. Yeah. But we are huge proponents of conservation funding, um, technical assistance, education and outreach, as well as the programs like EQIP and CSP, RCPP, that actually get practices out onto the ground. A big part of that is getting producers educated on uh, crops that do well in drought, you know, uh, getting informed on the changing precipitation patterns and if that might mean an adjustment in your rotation, Mm -hmm. as well as uh, more efficient irrigation. And, of course, soil health, which just helps helps your soil retain uh, more moisture when it needs it, and uh, is just really enormously beneficial to a number of aspects of your operation and the uh, environment in general. Right. But right. we, yeah, we we really want to work with private partners as well as the government extension system and on a producer to producer level to get folks thinking about this more and more. Uh, you know, our producers were again we're kind of unique. They do not hesitate to say that droughts are more severe and more common than if they're an intergenerational producer than, say, when their uh, parents or grandparents were farming. Mm-hmm. Um, so our, our folks are comfortable with that and uh, supportive of efforts to get people thinking about more about that and changes they need to make on their farm according to that. Right, right. Well, I, I've been doing a lot of reading about um, soil health because that seems to be the new trend. Uh, you know, I've been doing this show for eight years. So I've, I've actually, you know, in, in that decade, almost decade, you, I've really seen a lot of trends come and go. It's been very interesting from a historical sp- perspective. Um, but right now I'm seeing that all of a sudden, you know, a, the article 
articles here and there that you might have seen about, um, you know, like Iowa State, uh, you know, working on soil chemistry and promoting the idea of more of no-till crops and, you know, more cover crops and mulching and blah, blah, blah. You know, like all of a sudden that's, there's like three new books about it this season. I don't know if you've seen them. Um, but one that I loved was uh, David Montgomery's book, Growing a Revolution. I really recommend that to you if you haven't seen it. It was, it was excellent. He's a professor at um, UC uh, Irvine and he was, it's just so smart and so well written. Um, but I, let's keep going here because again, we're running out of time. So, so okay, here's, here's something that I, I always think about how like people like me, I'm sitting in New York, um, you know, I'm in this whole sort of progressive food thing and we're all like, well, farmers should do this and farmers should do that and blah, 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 blah. Like we know something about the industry, which frankly, most of us, certainly myself included, uh, don't really. Um, but in a recent conversation that I had with the guy at, at American Farmland Trust, um, he made clear to me that, you know, we all talk about like following the Joel Salatin polyphase farm. You know, we just need to, you know, deconsolidate these farms and turn them into small and medium sized farms again. And then, you know, and have them be multi-use, multi-purpose farms and everything will be okay. But as this guy at American Farmland Trust pointed out to me, um, you know, that's, that's not how it works. I mean, you can't just tell people in the corn belt that what they need to do is stop growing corn and, you know, repurpose their farm to multi-use because the distribution, the infrastructure required for managing a multi-use farm or a multi-crop type of farm it doesn't exist. So what do you think the answer is? <laughs> um, what is the National Farmers Union um, what is the position that you guys take in terms of how will we diversify our farming um, in light of, A, the fact that we're running out of water, that corn and soy and some of the other crops are very water intensive, right? Um, you know, that uh, that is detrimental to the soil to keep growing the same thing over and over again. We might be creating a dust bowl. We don't know. Um, you know, what's what do you guys think is the answer to that type of of sort of fundamental shift in farming that seems to need to take place and yet um, isn't. <laughs> I know, we, yeah, well, we're, you know, our, our producers are very conservation-minded, but at the same time, you know, our first responsibility is to make sure that producers can, um, you know, earn a living and that they can live in, uh, you know, vibrant communities. So this is, I was actually just speaking to a member about this in Denver at the Land for Good conference, and he really enlightened me. I get stuck contemplating these problems with a chicken or the egg scenario. Yeah. Um, a major issue that a lot of our smaller producers face is that if you don't have adequate volume of livestock, you cannot get USDA-inspected processing, which is right. an enormous obstacle Yes. to effective marketing. Um, and I, I really get caught up. Do you need the farmers there to um, justify a creative solution like a mobile uh, USDA-inspected processor that can go to farm-to-farm farm and um, manage smaller orders? Uh, do you need a, an oats mill so that you can encourage folks to produce oats um, that can be used in feed. That was something we were very comfortable with not too long ago in our agricultural history that mm -hmm. has fallen by the wayside, but mm -hmm. would be very beneficial to, uh, you know, increasing 
diversity in crop rotations, and mm-hmm. uh, the, the member is very versed in this stuff. He told me that uh, it's, you know, kind of a both situation. So with oats in particular, um, encouraging diversity of rotation, call it, you know, we need to get comfortable with the fact that that is a conservation priority. Mm-hmm. Try to get more people to do it. For the first couple of years, there's not going to really be a reasonable market for those oats, but you still got the soil health benefit. Right. Um, down the line, some some miller is going to realize that, hey, there's a lot of cheap oats out there, you mm-hmm. know, specifically if you do it in a region like uh, there was recently a study by Union of Concerned Scientists that quantified all the water quality benefits that adding oats to rotations in Iowa would do. Um, wow. So if there were a bunch of cheap oats in Iowa, some business is going to come in to take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's a bunch of uh, pasture-based small-batch livestock somewhere in one concentrated area, um, eventually... Eventually, despite all the obstacles, but particularly if we identify this and get really comfortable with this as a societal benefit, a processor will show up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we, we've got to support the processing, but also we've got to, uh, you know, be comfortable standing things up for the conservation benefits and letting the markets develop around that as well. Yeah, I think it's. I think it really does. Uh, it, it kind of devolves on developing the market, you know, um, <laughs> because uh, you know if there's more people who want to buy that pasture-based livestock, uh, then it makes sense to build a slaughterhouse in that county or in, in that within a hundred miles of that particular you know group of farms or whatever. Um, unfortunately, we got to call it a day here, Tom. This has been so interesting. I hope you'll come back. Um, because we didn't get to talk about food waste, which is a really big issue. Um, but we'll do that in the fall. I'm going to contact you again, and we'll talk more about uh, farmland co- conservation, uh, industrial acquisition, and food waste. Those are my next three big topics. So um, thanks so much for joining us today. It was really a pleasure talking to you. I, I'm looking forward to learning more about the National Farmers Union. I really appreciate your time. Please keep us posted. We're happy to speak whenever. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you for listening. Thanks to my sponsor, Chef's Collaborative, of which I am a proud member. Um, And remember, press the beating heart and give us your money now. Food Radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.